Happy Sunday. What a blessed time we've had this morning. Amen? Amen. Look, uh, I just want to say I'm so glad that the Lord led you to be with us, to be with me, for us to be able to be in the gospel together today. I hope uh, this morning finds you in a place where you're ready to hear from the Lord because this is a meaty passage. There's a lot here. And so I'm excited for us to just jump back into the Gospel of John. We're in the 13th chapter, if you remember. And Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples on the night that he is going to be betrayed. And Judas has just left the building, if you remember. And last week we saw as soon as Judas left, Jesus had a moment of, of clarity. He, he was given a vision from the Father of what was to come. And he says, now the Son of Man is glorified. And, and if you know the Son of Man is going to glorify the father the father will glorify the son it was a very deep and meaty passage we looked in that in my message called the glory of the cross so if you missed that i encourage you to go back and and get caught up on that but now like jesus is coming back to his disciples and he, he's looking at them with compassion because he understands they are going to be devastated by his coming departure and so he's faced with a very difficult task of preparing them for about for what is about to happen, right? So that's where we're going to pick up the story, John 13, 33 through 38. And Aaron and Laura Anderson will lead us in the reading of Scripture. Good morning, Colonial. We're the Andersons. I'm Aaron. And I'm Laura. And this is our 15-month-old daughter, Riley. We've been members at Colonial for about eight years now and have served in the youth ministry I play drums in the worship band, and we also serve at Harvester's Food Distribution. The scripture we're going to be reading from this morning is in John 13, verses 33 through 38. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. The word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, as we gather today, we just pray that you would speak to us through the power of the gospel. That we would find ourselves in the upper room with you, with the disciples. That we would feel the tension, uh, the, the emotion. That we would recognize uh, how crushing it would be for the disciples to learn that you were going away. The frustration of Peter and his enthusiasm, Lord, that, that we would hear the new command that you gave to your church. And we would understand what it means and, and what it calls from us as your church today to, to love one another just as you have loved us. Reveal to us the power of love. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, yes, my message is entitled, The Power of Love. And for those of you who were raised in the 80s, I know Huey Lewis is going through your mind right now. It's okay. Great song. 
But it's a, it's a fitting title for this text. And uh, three subheadings. Number one, the lonely road. Number two, a new command. And number three, a lesson in humility. So let's begin with first the lonely road. You know, one of my favorite all-time movies is The Dead Poets Society. Robin Williams plays the role of John Keating, a young, rogue English professor in an all-male, button-down Ivy League school. Many of you remember this. It's a, it's a prep school, so it's teenage boys. Um, and Keating comes in as this young, very unconventional, captivating professor. And he's, he's not a rule follower. He's a, he, he presses the establishment quite a bit in his tactics. And he develops a group of disciples from his class, these young students who discover the liberation of, of thinking for themselves through the power of poetry. Uh, Keating teaches his students the great Latin phrase, carpe diem, seize the day. I remember after watching the movie, we all talked about carpe diem for months, if years afterwards. The young men follow his lead in the movie. They create a secret group called the Dead Poet Society. Now, predictably, as the movie goes on, the tension between the old guard and the young idealists comes to a tragic end. And Keating is crucified by the establishment. He's forced to leave. So there at the end of the movie, one of the final scenes, Keating has gone into his class for the last time. He's packing his box, and one of the old guard administrators has stepped in. He's teaching the class, and he's doing it by the textbook to read the definition of poetry and so on. And it's, it's a very sad scene. And it seems that all is lost until one of the students... One of his disciples stands up on his chair and proclaims, Oh, captain, my captain. And many others begin to do the same thing. And of course, they're, they're quoting that, that line from the, the poem by the same name that honors the fallen Abraham Lincoln. You know, there's nothing like the loyalty and affection of young men for their teacher or their coach or their leader. You know, many of us experience that playing sports in school and that affection that we had for our coach. Many people who have served in the military had that kind of affection, honor, and respect for their commanding officer. And, you know, I just think about my own kids and their respect and honor for the director of the marching band. You know, it, if you can relate with that bond, that loyalty, that love and affection, then you can probably appreciate the intense, emotional, difficult job that awaits our Lord in this moment. For three years, he's called these young men to follow him, to learn from him, to be his students, to be his apprentices. They have traveled many miles together, shared countless meals, experienced the power of God, endured many trials and tribulations together. But Jesus right now knows something they don't. He knows what is about to go down. He knows that the events that will soon take place will be devastating to his students. So Jesus turns to them and he employs a, a term of great endearment. It's a familial term since they are sharing the Passover meal as a family. And he gently says to them, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. Now, there's no doubt that these words are devastating to the disciples and especially to Peter, as we'll see in just a minute. 
And the disciples don't understand yet what Jesus is trying to say. It just sounds like bad news. But they won't, they won't grasp the significance of these words until much later. But we're, we're reading these words on, on this side of the empty tomb, the cross and the empty tomb. And so we know, don't we, that Jesus, Jesus was preparing the disciples for the short time that he would have to walk the Via Dolorosa, the road of suffering, that, that he would have to walk alone. The evil of this world will temporarily remove the master from his students. His death and departure will be gruesome, and it will bring about hopelessness in his apprentices, his disciples. They will seek him, but where he is going, they will not be able to accompany him. Now, I want you to notice something that Jesus says here, because it's really pretty important. He emphasizes that the way is shut. Where he is going, the way is shut for both the believing disciples as well as the unbelieving Jews. That is significant. He says that both groups will seek him. Now, he says to the Jews, specifically, you will seek me, but you will not find me. He doesn't say that to the disciples. He says, you will seek me, but where I'm going, you may not come. In fact, no mortal can follow Jesus where he is going. The way is shut. Why? Because Jesus is not just going to his death. He is not simply going to Hades, the place of the dead. Jesus is going through death, and he will return to the right hand of the Father. And that way is shut for the disciples and the Jews alike. No sinful soul, listen, no sinful soul can stand in the presence of a holy God. We would be utterly destroyed. The brilliant holiness of God would, all, would just reveal all of our darkness, and it would destroy you, it would destroy me. That, that's kind of, I think, one of the things that Jesus is saying here. The way is set for all those corrupted by sin for now, at this moment. As Jesus will tell Peter in verse 36 later, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. You see, prior to the cross and the empty tomb, the way is shut. No one can go where Jesus must go alone. However, afterward, after the lamb has been slain, after sin and death have been defeated, after Jesus ascends to the Father and the Holy Spirit comes upon this church with power, afterward, the path will be made open for all who have faith in Jesus of Nazareth. Our good friend Alexander McLaren so beautifully articulates the transitory cannot in comparison to the eternal can. Here's what he says. The path that was blocked is open. The impossibility that towered up like a great black wall has melted away, and the path into the holiest of all is made patent by the blood of Christ. For in that death, there lies the power that sweeps away all the impediments of man's sin, and in that life of the risen, glorified, indwelling Christ, there lies the power which cleanses the inmost heart from all filthiness of flesh and spirit and makes it possible for our mortal feet to walk on the immortal path and for us with all our unworthiness and with all our shrinking to stand in his presence and not be ashamed or consumed. You cannot come was true for a few days. You can come is true forever and for all Christians. I think that is a beautiful picture of what Jesus is setting up for a short time, they cannot come. 
But because of what Jesus will accomplish on the cross through the empty tomb and his ascension to the right hand of the Father, he is making the way. And we're going to hear Jesus talk more about that as we turn into chapter 14. Now, I thank God that we will never, you and I, will never have to live in those dark days without Jesus and without hope as did the disciples so long ago. I mean, for a few days following the crucifixion, the 11 disciples would experience a level of hopelessness and despair that we would find utterly crushing. But thanks to the empty tomb and the witness of the New Testament, we will never have to hear Jesus say, you cannot come. Instead, his invitation to every believing soul every day is always, come unto me. Amen? Thanks be to God. So let us now turn to my second subheading, a new command. You know, imagine, if you will, a a platoon of soldiers at war. They're fighting a fierce enemy. It's been a fierce battle. But these men are fighting bravely with tremendous courage because they are inspired and led by their captain, who's just a phenomenal leader and a great example, and, and uh, he's led them well. Imagine that on the eve before the decisive surge that will either win the hill or lead to their defeat, the captain summons his men together and he says, Gentlemen, I have been mortally wounded. I will not make it through the night. You will have to take this hill without me. Now listen, here's what I want you to do tomorrow. Can you picture that moment? The soldiers would at once in the same moment be grieving for the captain who is dying and at the same time listening intently to his final directions. That is akin to what is happening here at this moment. Jesus has just announced that he is going to be with them just a short while longer and then he is going where they cannot follow. He is leaving them and they will have to go on without him. So that which their captain says next is incredibly important. And this is what Captain Jesus says. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. Now, these Jewish men are quite familiar with the Old Testament teachings regarding love, particularly Leviticus 19.18, where the Lord instructs the Israelites, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That is an old and very famous, profound teaching that, that would have been recited over and over again within the Jewish culture. So what makes this commandment of Jesus new? The new commandment is based upon these words. Just as I have loved you. That's what's new. Nobody ever loved like Jesus loved. New Testament scholar William Barclay identifies four unique qualities of the way that Jesus loved his own. Jesus loved his disciples selflessly, sacrificially, understandingly, and forgivingly. Let me unpack each one for just a minute. First, Jesus loved his own selflessly. You know, when you and I, as you know, sinful human beings, when we love somebody, there's always the consideration of what's in it for me. We think to ourselves, eh, if I show love towards this person or these people, will they love me back? How will loving this person or these people make me feel in the end? How much energy will be required for me to love these people? 
or this person? How much time will they require? Can I really afford to fall in love right now when I'm so busy with my career? I mean, we actually think things like this. You know, we we wonder, if I love this person, can they reciprocate? Can they meet my needs? The love that we engage in as fallen sinful human beings is almost always a conditional, self-serving love at some level. I mean, we wouldn't blatantly just come out and say that, but I mean, it's generally true. Jesus, however, loved people with no regard for his own welfare or what he would get out of the relationship. He loved them with the pure agape, that's the Greek word, the pure agape, God-like love, that is so beautifully articulated in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8, where Paul writes, agape, love, this kind of love, is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believe all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends or never fails. This is how Jesus loved. He loved us this way. He loved us selflessly. All right? Number two, Jesus loved us sacrificially. I love the way Barclay writes this. He says, there was no limit to what his love would give or to where it would go. No demand that could be made upon it was too much. If love meant the cross, Jesus was prepared to go there. Sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that love is meant to give us happiness. So in the end it does. But love may well bring pain and demand a cross. You know, as parents, we touched on this last week. You know, as parents, we know a little of the sacrifice that love demands, right? We give up sleep. We invest ridiculous amounts of money into one million pairs of shoes and college educations. We set aside our plans to attend games and concerts. That, that's just part of being a parent. Parent requires, uh, parenting requires sacrifice. And the same is true if our marriages are going to last. Sacrifices must be made. There will absolutely be some pain and suffering along the way. And Jesus showed us how to love sacrificially. In fact, he said... If anyone would come after him, we would need to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. So to love as Jesus loved us is to love sacrificially. Amen? Number three, Jesus loved understandingly. I'm not even sure that's a real word, but it it works. What do we mean by that? Well, Jesus did not love his romantic idea of having disciples. He actually loved these particular men knowing full well just how messed up they really were. Jesus knew Judas was the betrayer. At some point, we know he knew that. Jesus knew that Peter would deny him three times when Jesus really needed his friend the most. Jesus was very familiar with the feuding brothers, James and John, the sons of thunder. Jesus knew exactly how corrupt Matthew had been as a tax collector, how cynical Thomas would become, how dense Philip could be. Real love is not blind. Real love, the truest kind of love, is love with its eyes wide open. It loves not what it imagines a person to be, but who that person actually is. You know, when I think of loving understandingly, I think of the fact that my wife still loves me after 27 years. I find that remarkable because Christy actually knows the real Jim West better than anybody else, warts and all. She sees me at my best and at my worst and everywhere in between. And if she still loves me after all these years, I can rest assured that she loves me understandingly. 
Just as Jesus loved us for who we actually are, so we are to love others in the same way. Finally, Barclay observes that Jesus loved his disciples forgivingly. Maybe more than any other attribute, forgiveness is the hallmark of Christian relationships and loving. We already know that Peter would deny knowing Jesus three times in the moments of our Lord's greatest need, and yet Jesus willingly forgave Peter and entrusted to him the leadership of the church. The very cross itself points to our Lord's determination to forgive us. It is the ultimate expression of unconditional agape love. Barclay writes, The love which is not learned to forgive cannot do anything else but shrivel and die. We are poor creatures. Listen, and there is a kind of fate in things which makes us hurt most. That makes us hurt most of all those who love us best. For that very reason, all enduring love must be built on forgiveness. For without forgiveness, it is bound to die. Wow, don't you know that's true? Don't you know that's true? That we, we tend to hurt the people who love us the best. We tend to hurt them the most. Uh, there's something wrong with us. And it's called the sinful condition. And so if we're going to love like Jesus loved... And he said to love each other, to love the church, to love each other as Christians. And we must learn to love forgivingly. Amen? I, I think about you know, one of the great privileges of my career uh, is to be able to perform weddings. It's not always that much fun, but a lot of times it is. And I count it an honor every time because you stand before a couple at that sacred moment when vows are being made for a lifetime. I never take that moment lightly. And, and I always seek to share words of wisdom from the scriptures with the gospel at that wedding sermon that will, in one way or another, emphasize this point that Barclay just made. Our identity, our very identity as children of God and disciples of Jesus is found primarily on this truth that we are those who have been forgiven much at great cost to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ it would not be inaccurate to introduce myself as, Hi, my name is Jim West. I am a forgiven sinner set free by the blood of the Lamb. That's who I am. If our identity is established in the fact that we have been forgiven much, we will be those who are capable of great love. Because, as Jesus once taught in Luke 7, those who have been forgiven much love much. But those who have been forgiven little love little. So church... The identifying characteristic of true followers of Jesus is this, that we love one another just as Jesus loved us. In fact, the whole world will come to identify us with Jesus based on the quality of our life together. That is in the way that we love one another. And that is exactly what Jesus states in John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have Love, this kind of love for one another. Now, very quickly, I want to observe that this phrase, just as, in the Greek, points to Jesus not only as our example, but also as our cause. Jesus will be the source and the power by which we are able to love one another as Christ loved us. It is because we had been loved by Christ and we continue to be loved by Christ that we will have it within us to love others with his kind of love. You know, in loving each other with this extraordinary love of Christ, 
it's, it's as though Christ is still walking in our midst. They, people actually get to meet Jesus when we love people like Jesus loved them. I love that lyric in Les Miserables, to love another person is to see the face of God. It's just this great hanging moment in that song, and it's, it's beautiful. To love another person is to see the face of God. Indeed, when we love another as Christ loved us, we reflect the very heart of God. Now, sadly, and you know this is true, when we fail to love one another in our Lord's church, when we bicker, when we complain, when we abandon one another, we present a confusing message to the world. You know, the early church father, John Chrysostom, once wrote, If the pagan outsider sees a Christian man trembling with fear of death, how will he accept the words spoken in the church of immortality? When he sees us ambitious for power and enslaved by the other passions, he will remain more firmly fixed in his own beliefs since he entertains no exalted opinion of us. Indeed, we are responsible for their remaining in air, for they have long since come to despise their own teachings and at the same time to admire ours, but are kept from them by our lives. When they observe us attacking our neighbors more savagely than any wild beast, they call us the plague of the world. These things hold pagans back and do not permit them to come over to us. Now, that is a hard quote, but that's not something somebody just wrote recently in 21st century America. That was from a long time ago. It's always been a challenge for us to love one another in the church, in the Christian community, as Jesus loved us. But that's what he said. And more than ever in our country, our life together, our love for another will determine the effectiveness of our witness and our ministry as a church. And I think we all know that witness must extend beyond the walls of the church. It is the way we love one another out there, in our neighborhoods, in our homes, in the office, at the ballparks, in the public square. Our doctrine is either validated or invalidated by the way we love or the way we fail to love one another. Amen? Let's take that to heart. Let me conclude now with my third subheading, A Lesson in Humility. As was the case just minutes ago when Peter was too humble to allow Jesus to wash his feet, the boisterous, well-intended fisherman once again challenges his teacher asking, Lord, where are you going? Peter's unconvinced that Jesus needs to go it alone. Doesn't matter where he's going, Peter's going with him. He, He has followed Jesus through thick and thin for three years. He is confident that whatever the situation, he and Jesus will get through it together. And we can't help but admire Peter's loyalty and his determination to walk with Jesus no matter where Jesus is going next. Okay, well, once again, Jesus demonstrates tremendous patience with Peter and very gently responds, Where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow afterward. Jesus understands Peter. So, Instead of simply stating that Peter can't follow, Jesus gets a bit more specific and indicates that it's just for now that Peter cannot follow, but that afterward, Peter will follow. Of course, many biblical scholars suspect that Jesus is foreshadowing Peter's martyrdom, but that would have been completely lost on Peter if that was the case. Whatever the situation here, I mean, Peter clearly is not willing to take no for an answer. He doubles down and asks once again, Lord, why can I not follow you? I will lay my life down for you. 
Peter's loyalty and determination, however sincere, reflects a level of confidence in his own strength and a lack of confidence in Jesus' judgment. In other words, Peter's challenging Jesus. He is not so subtly suggesting that Jesus has grossly underestimated Peter's strength of friendship, his loyalty, and his courage. Peter goes so far as to declare that he would lay down his life for Jesus. (laughs) Now, the irony here is rich. I'm sure you've picked up on that. In fact, this moment is so rich, all four gospel accounts recall this story. Jesus is on his way to the cross to lay his life down for Peter and for all of us. Yet Peter thinks that the greatest good might mean laying down his life for Jesus. In his mind, the life of the followers forfeit to the life of the leader. Never in his dreams did Peter imagine that the leader would lay down his life for the followers. Peter's operating on the assumptions of normalcy, but Jesus is not normal. Nor is the evil afoot this night some kind of normal evil. Spiritual warfare is raging all around him and Peter has no clue. The powers at work on this night are beyond his comprehension. I mean, I picture here a small child with his water gun vowing to protect his warrior father from the enemy troops that are storming the military base. Now, we know that the father has already revealed Peter's weakness to Jesus. So Jesus answers Peter saying, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Peter does not respond. In fact, we will not hear Peter say another word for the next four chapters. He is either terribly embarrassed or indignant either way. The prophecy of denial had to hurt Peter's pride and call into question his relationship with Jesus. And I think that was probably our Lord's intent. Listen, Christianity is never about what we are willing to do for Jesus. Christianity is always about what Jesus was willing to do for us. And there's only one hero in the Christian faith, and it's not going to be Peter. It's not Jim West. It's not Billy Graham. There's only one hero of our faith, and that is Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of Man, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Amen? His strength sustains us. His sacrifice saves us. His love empowers us. His spirit guides us. If it were only our puny souls trying to muster up the energy to do something good for God, having to contend against, you know, the prince of this world, the liar who is the enemy of our souls, Even on our best day, the best we could do would deny Jesus three times. I mean, Peter was really, he represents the best intention, most enthusiastic believer who, like many of us, was just proud enough to believe that Jesus needed his strength. Jesus needed his sacrifice. Jesus doesn't need our strength or our sacrifice. We need his. Jesus has not underestimated our loyalty or our friendship. We've underestimated Jesus' loyalty and his friendship. Jesus doesn't need us to die for him. We need him to die for us. So again, let us be grateful for Peter's well-intentioned hubris, pride, because he will learn a lesson that we would all do well to learn. Jesus is Lord. He doesn't need our help, our advice, or our sacrifice. 
He does deserve our obedience and our unconditional trust. We can take him at his word. He knows what he's doing. Now we're going to, we'll revisit Peter's denial later in John's gospel. But for now, let us just learn from this little lesson on humility. Amen. Now church, I hope you'll spend some time contemplating all that we have learned this morning. Let us take to heart the words of our Lord and the command that remains paramount to our life together. And to our witness, love one another. Just as I have loved you, said Jesus, so also are you to love one another. I want you to think, take some time. Think about what that means to love selflessly, sacrificially, understandingly, and forgivingly with your spouse, with your children, with your co-workers, with your fellow church members. Take time to reflect on the scandalous inclusivity of the gospel. Reflect upon how this kind of love transcends race, gender, ethnicity, language, culture, and country. Ask Jesus to abide with you. Seek him now while he can be found. Remember his great love for you and ask Jesus to empower you to love others, to love your brothers and sisters just as Jesus first loved you. Can you picture what our church would look like, what our city would look like, what our country would look like if the followers of Jesus actually loved one another as Jesus first loved us? Can you even imagine that picture? That's a game changer, church. And I'm praying right now that that picture becomes a reality in your life and mine, in our church, in your home, in my home, in this city. Let's pray that the Lord empowers us to love one another so all the world will know that we are his disciples. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, as we close today, I just thank you that you are a, a good and glorious God, that you love us selflessly, sacrificially, understandably, forgivingly, that, that you love us with, with a love that is so profound, so unconditional, and that because we have been forgiven much and we have been loved in this way, you've empowered us to extend this love one to another. And you've commanded this of us. That our, our witness depends upon this, Lord. And we confess we have stunk it up. We have too often allowed any number of things to cause us to divide it and, and to to not love one another in the way that you loved us. And we repent of that, Lord. We pray for your mercy. We pray that we would remember how deeply we have been loved, how immensely we have been forgiven, that we would know as those who have been forgiven much, we can love much. We can love in the way that you have loved us. We pray for this to sweep through our city, that, that your church in Kansas City would be known for the way that they love one another and that it would be compelling to the watching world. We pray that you will accomplish this for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.